Hello, this is Kathy Simo. For the next hour, I'll be reading from recent issues of the Jamestown Post-Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This article is from Wednesday, May 31, Post-Journal. Awaiting return. It could be a week or more before the Chautauqua County man taken into custody last week on numerous federal and local arrest warrants, is back in New York. Jason Schmidt, Chautauqua County District Attorney, released a statement Tuesday on Michael Burnham, the 34-year-old arrested in South Carolina, capping a nearly two-week search. Last known to have lived in Asheville, Burnham had been wanted locally on charges of rape and unlawful imprisonment, when he was implicated in the May 11th death of Kayla Hodgkin. The 34-year-old mother of three was found dead inside her William Street home in Jamestown. My understanding is that the U.S. Marshal Service is handling his transport back to Western New York Division, Western District of New York, and that his ETA is not yet clear. It may take another week or two, said Schmidt, if not more, before he is back in New York. Detail crimes committed by Burnham and Pennsylvania are many. Moments after police were called to Hodgkin's home the early morning of May 11, Jamestown police received word from another woman who said Burnham had tried to break into her home. When the break-in failed, Burnham allegedly set her car on fire. The incident was captured on a doorbell camera and later shared by police. Court documents state Burnham, on May 20th, nine days after the homicide, kidnapped a man and woman from their Sheffield home in Warren County. The pair was later reported missing by a relative. According to an affidavit obtained by the Post-Journal, the couple was found in a cemetery in North Charleston by a police officer. The woman told police that Burnham had appeared in her garage in Sheffield, Pennsylvania with a revolver and drove the two to South Carolina. Police located the pair's SUV in a nearby parking lot. Inside was a note that in part read, sorry for all the problems I caused the family. I'm not sorry for what I did. However, I do feel terrible about the children. The note, apparently addressed to Burnham's father, was included in the FBI affidavit attached to the criminal complaint filed in U.S. District Court of New York. Following a days-long manhunt, Burnham was taken into custody late Wednesday afternoon in South Carolina near the Berkeley-Charleston County line. In a news release from the FBI, authorities credited an observant Berkeley County resident who spotted Burnham near his home and immediately called 911. Responding law enforcement agencies used canines to track Burnham, which aided in his arrest. Every single law enforcement team from Buffalo to South Carolina was determined and committed to finding this dangerous man, Matthew Miraglia, special agent in charge of the FBI Buffalo Field Office, said in a statement last week. Burnham had evaded law enforcement long enough. I'm thankful no one was injured and grateful to all the law enforcement agencies that came together, and of course the community members who provided tips along the way. We all came together. Our communities are safer tonight because of those efforts. In addition to local warrants for rape, unlawful imprisonment, and arson in New York, and kidnapping in Pennsylvania, Burnham is facing a federal charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. 
Schmidt said Burnham went before a South Carolina judge where he waived any objection to his extradition on the federal warrant. I have already been in contact with the Pennsylvania and federal prosecutors. We are coordinating the respective prosecutions so that it makes the most sense for all of us, taking into account that our homicide investigation is still being put together, the DA said. Ms. Hodgkins' death is obviously the most serious event in this tragic chain of events. It is critical to all that we proceed diligently but carefully, especially given our discovery obligations in the face of an investigation that spans multiple states and multiple law enforcement agencies. Schmidt added, I will try to be as transparent as I can given the seriousness of the case. My heart goes out to the family of Ms. Hodgkin. We are working hard to ensure that the responsible person be held accountable for his action. To date, no charges relating to Hodgkin's death have been announced. Schmidt said Burnham was the subject of an ongoing homicide investigation arising from her death. Captain Samuelson of the Jamestown Police Department told the newspaper that Hodgkin had reported an assault to the department. Her report led to the police issuing a warrant for Burnham's arrest April 27. Burnham and Hodgkin had previously been in a relationship together and the two shared a child. This next article, Mayor Eddie Sundquist Provides Update on Migration by Timothy Frudd of the Post-Journal. While the state grapples with how to handle the recent influx of migrants coming from the southern border of the United States, Mayor Eddie Sundquist made it clear that Jamestown currently does not have resettlement plans for migrants and that the city has not yet been approached by the state for any resettlement opportunities. Following Monday's city council voting session, Sunquist was asked by local reporters for an update on migration in the Jamestown region. Sunquist explained that the city does not actively participate in any efforts for the resettlement of asylum seekers or migrants. However, he said migrants and asylum seekers have relocated to the city and have been working with local churches and other organizations to obtain housing and other forms of support. I'll say that I've been on multiple calls with the mayor of New York City, as well as with the governor, and we're trying to figure out what the state is going to do, Sunquist said. As it stands right now, the city does not have any type of resettlement plan and has not been approached for any type of resettlement opportunities by the state. As the Post-Journal previously stated, Chautauqua County Executive P.J. Wendell issued an emergency declaration last week after New York City announced that it intended to relocate asylum seekers and migrants to other counties throughout New York. Wendell warned that Chautauqua County does not have the resources to handle a surge in migrants and asylum seekers. Over the past several months, thousands of asylum seekers have been arriving in New York City, which is now so overwhelmed that it is trying to move these individuals to other counties that do not have the infrastructure to care for them, especially since social services funding is not available to undocumented individuals said Wendell. While we support the families who have already migrated to our country, we lack the services and funding required to assist additional individuals. While Sunquist said the city is not actively participating in migrant resettlement efforts, the Jamestown community has been participating in efforts to relocate refugees and asylum seekers over the past year. 
Earlier this spring, the Reverend Luke Fodor from St. Luke's Episcopal Church told the Post-Journal that the New Neighbors Coalition has been working with Journeys End on refugee resettlement while working separately to welcome Colombian asylum seekers to Jamestown. However, while community organizations have been working with migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, Sunquist has explained that the city government is not actively engaging in migrant resettlement efforts at this time. On that same topic, this is a, an, a, an editorial on um, sharing New York City's migrant wealth. State needs to share New York City's migrant wealth with the rest of the state. It's hard to say upstate New York is entirely shortchanged in the state budget when one looks at the massive amount of state education aid that pours into our county schools year after year. But Assemblyman Andrew, Andrew Goodell is right when he said there are some areas where our area is certainly shortchanged by state government. The state's handling of migrants is one of those areas. We're about to vote on this budget, Goodell said. We have $1 billion in this budget for migrant services in New York City. That's a little over $18,000 per immigrant who's in New York City. How much do we have for upstate? Zero. My county, by the way, we have several families that are seeking asylum that came from Colombia. My community is struggling so we can treat them with compassion and fairness. And we get zero support from the state of New York, while New York City, over $18,000 per person. Zero upstate. New York City will see $1 billion this year to help deal with its influx of migrants, even while Mayor Eric Adams is trying to send more and more of those migrants out of the city and into the suburbs surrounding New York City. But those surrounding counties aren't going to get much financial help once they leave New York City. Areas like Jamestown, meanwhile, are dealing with a trickle of migrants and getting no help from the state. Here it's up to the goodwill of our churches and a small band of concerned city residents to help the migrants settle while they file the paperwork to legally be able to work. As we said earlier this year, the settlement of migrants in Jamestown isn't a crisis yet. The problem is Jamestown is an armadillo in the immigration jungle, hoping not to get stampeded as the elephants and rhinoceroses who make the state and federal immigration policies spar in the plains. What happens to Jamestown if, with no additional state aid, Adams decides to bus migrants further west? What happens if Hochul decides to use State University at New York dorms statewide to house migrants, again, with no additional state aid to the affected localities? Hochul's emergency declaration promises money, but she certainly didn't show upstate the migrant money in the budget. We hope they start caring soon before migrants do become a crisis here. On the topic of money, city must do more to put unspent home program money to good use. Home is an, an acronym for, I'm not sure what, unspent H-O-M-E program money. It was certainly surprising to learn Jamestown has nearly $1 million in unspent federal H-O-M-E program money sitting in the bank. One would think a city with the housing issues Jamestown faces wouldn't have that much federal aid 
waiting to be spent, especially with the popularity and success of programs created last year with Federal American Rescue Plan Act money. With so much money from 2018 through 2021, it's hard to find fault with the city's plan to partner with Chautauqua Home Rehabilitation and Improvement Corporation by spending $225,000 in unspent home program money on a first-time home owner by first-time home buyer program. CHRIC will provide up to four thousand in financial assistance so low and moderate income first-time home buyers with CHRIC reimbursement by the Jamestown Herbal Renewancy Renewal Agency. The program will end in 2026. It's hard to find fault with this program other than wondering why the city hadn't found this partnership at some other point over the past few years, particularly when the city's housing market was soft and first-time homebuyer help could have really helped prop up a lagging housing market. We are curious about two things. What is the city's plan for the remaining $750,000 in unspent HOME program money from 2018 to 2021 and any other unspent money. How will the city change its future home program plans to avoid having pots of unspent money in the future? Much like the federal ARPA money, home program and CDBG are outright gift monies from taxpayers through the federal government, and having that money waiting to be spent is a waste of that gift. If existing programs aren't being spent, then the city must come up with new programs that will be spent quickly. Heaven knows neighborhoods in this city need the investment. Having one million in unspent money over the course of five years is a sign we have to create new HOME-funded programs that will benefit the city's housing stock. Another money story. Sunquist presents Municipal Bond Plan to Council by Timothy Frudd. City, city officials are discussing a potential bond to cover the cost of city facility repairs and improvements. Mayor Eddie Sundquist presented members of the City Council with an initial overview of a potential municipal facilities repair bond during City Council's work session. We limited the needs, really, to the municipal facilities. And this is just a first draft for you all, he said. I know there's not a lot with it, and that's intentional, because we want you to take the time you need to discuss it and go through some of those items. I just wanted to give you a high-level overview of what we're looking at in terms of a bond. The total cost of the proposed municipal facilities repair bond is $6.4 million. While Sundquist acknowledged that the total cost of the bond may seem high, he said it does not seem quite as high considering just the cost of replacing the roof at City Hall is estimated at $1.8 million. He explained that the Municipal Facilities Repair Bond would cover several different projects, including over $3.1 million in various municipal building improvements and repairs. That includes the roof, he said. We had hoped that the patching we did on the roof was going to hold. We are still seeing leaks within the building, and so it will need to be replaced. 
As a reminder, that building opened up in 1971. Sundquist said the proposed bond also includes $400,000 in security improvements and enhancements for City Hall, with various tenants at City Hall allowing people in the building later than the city has security guards at the building. Sundquist explained that city officials have had discussions regarding key fobbing various doors and elevators at City Hall in order to lock the building down a bit more after regular hours when security is not present. Under the Municipal Building Improvements and Repairs portion of the bond, the city could also allocate $350,000 to replace the damaged windows at City Hall. There are 17 damaged windows currently on the building, and as you all know, it takes some time to get those windows and replace them, he said, some of which have been cracked, some have been damaged by various incidents, some have just lost their weatherization between the panes. The municipal building improvements and repairs portion of the bond would also include $600,000 for upgrades to City Hall's HVAC system. According to Sunquist, the city currently has 27 heating and cooling units in the fire station that are nearing the end of use or are already broken. The HVAC upgrades would also include a replacement of the HVAC control system, which controls the city's Steel Street building, as well as the Parks Department building. The system was created and installed back in 2006, and it's virtually impossible to get any updates or repairs to those control systems, Sunquist said. The proposed municipal facilities repair bond also includes $250,000 in funding for fixing the Department of Public Works building's roof, which is currently shrinking and pulling the parapet walls in various places. The $250,000 would cover both the cost of fixing the roof and repairing the wall structures. Another line item included in the Municipal Facilities Repair Bond is the Fenton History Center's roof. Sundquist said the total cost of replacing the roof would be $2 million due to the delicate process required for the Fenton History Center. I do want to note that we are saying the $2 million, but we are fairly confident we'll be able to get additional grant funding to cover a majority of this. There is grant funding for it, however, we're just in the stages of applying for it, and I wanted to give you guys the full number so I don't have to come back and say we really needed more. Sunquist also proposed bonding for 500000 of the Fleet Maintenance Building to cover unexpected labor and material costs for the Fleet Maintenance Building project. Between the additional gap funding and the $1 million reimbursement from the state that the city has applied for, Sunquist said the city would have enough funding to complete the project. Finally, Sundquist indicated that the Bergman Park water line is in need of replacement and would be included in the bond proposal. I know this isn't really a municipal building. However, we have painstakingly ripped up and repaired this water line many times, and in the last couple of months, there was another repair of it, he said. We don't believe we're going to be able to continue to patch and repair that water line. So between the BPU and the DPW, we estimate that cost to be about 500000 Based on conversations with Jennifer Williams, city clerk, 
and Joe Belito, former city comptroller, Sundquist said the city can comfortably borrow up to almost $12 million without any major impact to the city's current operations. We are very low on our actual debt right now as a city, so we wanted to confirm with them what we think we could borrow, he said. The other thing I would point out is that we still have ARPA funds. I didn't include it here because I think it's a discussion for everyone. There's still $1.7 million in the ARPA funds that could be applied toward all this, should the council wish. That's obviously for some further discussion, which would reduce that debt. Asked if any bonds are coming off the city's budget in the near future, Sundquist said he was not sure, but would look into it for city council members. Sundquist also shared an update regarding Moody, one of the city's bond raiders. For those that may remember, the last time Moody raided the city, they gave us junk bond status, Sundquist said. We did a ratings call with them, and it was very, very positive. We anticipate this week they will be releasing our rating, and it's going to be much higher than junk status, which certainly is a positive thing. Sunquist explained that Moody changed its rating system to incorporate other environmental factors and additional factors, which has been a positive change for the city. He told city council members that more information regarding the city's bonding credit score will be available later in the week, emphasizing that the information is expected to be very positive regarding the city's financial position. Money, money. YMCA requests funding toward new building by Timothy Frud. The Jamestown YMCA is asking for a $1 million grant from the Jamestown Local Development Corporation toward the construction of a new Y facility in the community. The YMCA's grant application is under the Nonprofit Assistance Program. The City Council allocated $1.5 million in American Rescue Plan Act funding to help local nonprofit organizations in Jamestown. John Barber, Vice President of Operations for the Jamestown YMCA, and Tom Benson, Chairman of the YMCA Committee, presented an overview of the YMCA's request during the committee's recent meeting. We've submitted a proposal. Many of you have certainly seen that the Y has an endeavor to build, up, build a new Y facility, Barber said. The reasons for that are pretty simple. If you've been to the Y, a short walk around the space will tell you pretty quickly the space has aged. In fact, you can walk and see the cornerstone and see that the building was built in 1929. So we're approaching a 100-year-old building. Barber said the YMCA views the proposal as a unique opportunity that comes at a time when the city has received additional funding to help the local community. He added that the city and the community have the opportunity to make an investment that can propel the YMCA forward. With roots going back to 1858, Barber said the Y has endured through many difficult times, such as wars, recessions, periods of inflation. He acknowledged that recent COVID-19 pandemic significantly impacted the operations of the Y, forcing the organization to close portions of its operation. Our fitness centers closed. We saw our membership reduce, but the real secret about the why was revealed during the pandemic because when fitness centers had to close, guess who was still there with open programming? The YMCA, he said. 
we were still there providing emergency and essential child care facilities. We were providing meals, delivering meals. We were changing even some things we did in order to be able to meet community needs during that time. While many places were actually shut down, there were many of our staff who actually worked through the entire pandemic because the community still needed the Y. In his request for funding toward the WISE project, Barber referenced how the community came together in 1929 to build a new YMCA facility. He described the grant funding opportunity as an invitation and a way for the city to invest in the Y to ensure that it is prepared for the next crisis that would face the local community. We're actually asking for an unprecedented investment in some ways into something that when or if as and as challenges face our community, the why will be there. We will be there for the next 100 years. After outlining the why's request for funding, Barbara shared some of the ways the why has been able to impact the community over the past year. During 2022, Barbara said 634 children participated in after-school, summer day camp, and special family events. According to Barbara, 199 teenagers participated in the WISE free after-school program at the Teen Center. 223 children worked with volunteer coaches in youth basketball leagues. 102 children participated in the WISE summer learning program that was designed to help narrow gaps in academic achievement. Additionally, Barbara shared that the Y served over 67,000 meals and over 12,000 snacks at 24 locations to 1,300 different youth during 2022. Barbara also said 53% of the WISE members have some sort of subsidized membership. Currently, Barbara said, the Y is planning a Walk with Ease program and a blood pressure prevention program for community members as well as other community programs. We just recently started a partnership with the Resource Center for their day programs to actually come and utilize the Y every Monday morning, which means then a population that actually is at risk of certain health factors actually now have access to our pools, our group exercise, and our fitness every single week. While Barber acknowledges that the WISE funding request is large, he believes the city's investment would have long-lasting effect. By helping the Y, it will impact the community's various programs. Benson said the YMCA has about a four has about four million dollars in committed funds from local and regional foundations. However, the project has faced a major roadblock with regard to state funding for new YMCA facility. We met with state officials two or three times about the project. They're familiar with Jamestown. They were involved in the Comedy Center project. They like the project very much. They want to be able to fund the project, but they said you have to come back when you have more of something in the bag to show us there's local commitment to this project. Benson shared that the Y approached the state a second time, following the commitments from local foundations. However, without a commitment from the city, the state indicated it would be very difficult for the Y to receive state funding for the project. Basically, with no commitment of any of the American Rescue Plan Act funds 
into this project, the state rejected our application. We asked for five point something million. They said zero. So that puts us back to where we are now. Raising 30 million is a process where you have to be able to point to success to the next place, to the next place, to the next place. It's great to say we have 4 million of commitment from local foundations, which is a lot. That's a big number, but we have three or four other sources of funding lined up, but we have to be able to go back to them and say, now we have the city commitment, not just with a letter, but with skin in the game. Moving forward, Benson said the Y is going to host a fundraising campaign and has requested $2 million through the federal government's earmark program. He described the new facility's fundraising status as a pyramid of funding that can quickly add up to total needed by the Y with the right steps. Absolutely key to that right now is for the city of Jamestown to step up and understand that this isn't a million dollars. This equals a lot more than that. It equals the state's commitment, probably, and it allows us to move forward because right now we're kind of stuck in the mud. Unless we can get some kind of impotence to move this to the next step, we're in trouble. Benson also explained that the clock is ticking on the current Y facility. While Benson and Barber believe the building can be utilized by other organizations in the future, they indicated that the current Y facility is not sustainable for its current usage. Although Benson shared that the bailout money received by the Y has helped keep the current facility going, he warned that in the not-too-distant future, the Y will not be able to continue operating its outdated facility. For the future of this community and all other stuff we're trying to bring, and all the other stuff we're trying to do to bring young people back to this place without a Y, especially a full-body Y, like what we're talking about here, it just creates a big hurdle to that whole process. Hopefully we can get the commitment from the city to get the ball rolling and move this thing forward and to allow us leverage to the next bunch of steps because it's crucial. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Jamestown Post-Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. So here's something fun. New Ferris Wheel Stands Out at Midway State Park by Sarah Holthouse. Midway State Park has installed the new Ferris Wheel with plans of the ride being open to the public for the summer season. Located on Route 430 in Maple Springs, the park opens for the summer on Memorial Day weekend and remains open until Labor Day weekend. The project to install the new Ferris wheel has been ongoing since 2019, slightly delayed because of the pandemic. The park partnered with Friends of Midway State Park and Natural Heritage Trust to buy two more rides for the park, the Ferris wheel and a twister ride. While the Twister ride will require more work before it's operational, the Ferris wheel will be operational for the upcoming season, depending on the Department of Labor's approval. The park also had help from public to fundraise for the two rides. The ride is a 1946 number 5 Ferris wheel. This is the same model that used to be in the park in the 70s, said Marla Canelli, park manager. The opportunity arose for us to acquire one, so we did. The fact that it appears to be the same model as the old wheel brings a bit of history back to the park. There will be a required height limit for the Ferris wheel, 
with children needing to be at least 48 inches tall. It will be a tall child slash adult ride. As far as the twister goes, the main reason there's so much more work to do is because the original manufacturer is no longer in business. We have to have parts custom made. This is an Alan Herschel ride, and we believe that when it's up and running, it will be the only one in operation in the country. The park has never had a twister before, but has had a collection of other Alan Herschel rides. In the future, the park hopes to have several other rides installed, including others that were historically present at the park. The two current rides were purchased from Lake Mont Park in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and that park has other rides believed to make wonderful additions to Midway. There's a master plan available online. There's always something happening. We try every few years to do something like this, Canelli said, though this has been the main focus for the last few years. Another big future event planned for the season is Midway State Park's 125th anniversary. There'll be a celebration on July 12, as that's when the park first opened in 1898. The park will be open late, and there will be fireworks in the celebration. And speaking of area, Fun things to do. The Bemis Point Stowe Ferry is beginning its 212th season. The vessel will operate on a regular schedule of Fridays from 4 to 9 and Saturday and Sunday from noon to 9. As in the past, the ferry ride is free with donations accepted. The Bemis Point Stowe Ferry is operated and maintained by volunteers. This includes pilots, ambassadors, and the Ferry Corps of Engineers, who enjoy sharing their knowledge about the history of the ferry and keeping the legacy of this unique boat an active connection to the past. According to Jay Coons, the co-president of the organization, the ferry offers a unique way to see the lake. Nobody rides the ferry if they're in a hurry, Clint said. Come take a trip back in time. More information on the ferry can be found at www.thebemispointstowferry.com or at the ferry's Facebook site, The Historic Bemis Point Stowe Ferry. In the arena of entertainment, the National Comedy Center announces a new summer promotion by Timothy Frud. The National Comedy Center is welcoming kids and teenagers for free this summer, encouraging families to attend the popular Jamestown attraction. Journey Gunderson, executive director, said the summer promotion, which will start on Memorial Day weekend, is unprecedented and is made possible by Schultz Auto Group, a partner and sponsor of the National Comedy Center. There is so much at the National Comedy Center for kids and families, Gunderson said. It's an experience featuring comedy's greatest hits for all ages, and it's interactive. They can perform comedy, karaoke, put themselves into classic television and movie scenes, create their own funny cartoons, and more, much more. Gunderson said U.S. News and World Report has even recognized the National Comedy Center as a top 25 family weekend getaway site. Under the summer promotion, up to two children and teenagers can visit the National Comedy Center for free with an accompanying paying adult. If you haven't been to the Comedy Center in a while, you have to see our two newest exhibits, Gunderson said. Johnny Carson, the immersive experience with hologram host 
Jimmy Fallon. Features Steve Martin, Mel Brooks, Martin Short, Bette Midler, Byron Allen, Billy Crystal, Paula Poundstone, Conan O'Brien, George Lopez, Jay Leno, and many more as we showcase the king of late night on 30 digital projection surfaces in our state-of-the-art theater. Additionally, Gunderson said, the Carl Reiner Keep Laughing exhibit, which has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, gives visitors the opportunity to experience Rainer's seven-decade career, including collaborations with Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, Steve Martin, Mel Brooks, and Sid Caesar. Asked what she would say to encourage people to visit the National Comedy Center and attend the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival, Gunnarsson asked how anyone could skip visiting a national attraction such as our National Comedy Center, especially since it has been labeled one of Time's World's Greatest Places, USA Today's Best New Museum, and Best New Attraction in the Country, People's Magazine's 100 Reasons to Love America, and U.S. News and World Report's Top 25 Family Weekend Getaways in the Country. With a state-of-the-art attraction and one of the best comedy festivals in the nation, Gunderson said people come to Jamestown to visit the National Comedy Center from every state in the country. As a result of its popularity, the National Comedy Center has been recognized by CBS Sunday Morning, NBC's Today Show, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, you, The New York Times, and USA Today. You owe it to yourself and your family to come visit for a day or a weekend filled with laughter, Gunderson said. With kids and teens free this summer, there has never been a better time to experience the National Comedy Center. And with our stellar comedy lineup, the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival is not to be missed in August. This article is called Opposing Short-Term Rental Changes by Margot Russell. Now that Dunkirk and Mayville are starting discussions on short-term rental regulations in their own communities, it seems the modern question to rent or not to rent has taken center stage in Chautauqua County. And while it's a hot topic, it's important to remember that people's lives will irrevocably change by decisions made by local boards. Lakewood leaders, in the process of hammering out a new approach to rentals in the village, say they are still in the decision-making phase, despite rumors that they plan to move forward with a ban on all rentals under 30 days in residential zones. The speculation has spurred a petition by those who oppose a crackdown in the village of more than 188 signatures gathered. The petition posted an, at change.org spells out other alternatives beyond outright rental bans, like strengthening and enforcing existing laws and ordinances to help mitigate complaints. Most contentious is the implication that village leaders have been swayed by those who are in favor of a ban, mostly neighbors who have lodged complaints about noise and unruly parties at short-term rental homes in their neighborhoods. But opponents say strict short-term rental laws promote one owner's interest over another, acting as an unconstitutional infringement on property owners' rights. Looking at two different examples of homeowners who rent their homes in Lakewood may help to shine a light on both sides. Landlord 1 has owned his home on the water for more than a decade. His taxes run $20,000 a year. Taxes. An astronomical amount. They are committed and responsible homeowners and active in the community. Maintain their home, 
rent their house to other families for three to five weeks per year to help offset their tax bill. They follow county rental laws and local ordinances, pay taxes on the rentals, and have not yet to have any complaints filed against them. They are model landlords. They also give access to families who come to the lake for summer vacation, a time-honored tradition for hundreds of years. Landlord 2 has bought a house in Lakewood solely to rent it through online rental platforms. Their house is empty when it's not being rented. No one at the address has a stake in the community. They don't vote, they don't volunteer, or attend village meetings. They don't care if the neighbors are kept up during weekend house parties and all-night bonfires. Homeowner 2 is a ghost. Landlord 1 may be right to surmise that he is being punished for the action of Landlord 2. And as a property owner who also contributes to the health of the village, his rights should matter. Lakewood Mayor Randy Holcomb says making everybody happy is an impossible task, but trustees feel the time has come to address complaints about short-term rentals. Village residents have a right to live peaceably. Trustee Ellen Brown added, the board has been criticized for not taking action sooner. I believe a measured approach rather than adopting an overreaching solution is the best way forward. We have a long history of renting on this lake, and thousands of families for generations have come here to fish and grill hamburgers and swim off the dock at their rental cottages. Ghost houses are an ongoing problem in many communities. Trustee Barnes pointed to a recent visit to another popular lakeside community where the eerie silence reminded her of how far-reaching the implications are when too many homes fall victim to ghost landlords. But it's possible to grandfather in those <clears throat> who have been renting successfully for years, or the board could also adopt a percentage rule, which stipulates a homeowner must occupy his house a majority or a certain percentage of the year. There are a myriad of ways other communities have dealt with rentals that forego outright bans. The time for information gathering is coming to an end. Holcomb says they will hold an open house so residents can ask questions and offer more input, although a date for that has not been yet set. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from recent issues of the Jamestown Post-Journal. Your reader has been me, Kathy Simo. I thank you for listening.